0: Welcome to the ninth season of the Combustion Chronicles podcast, where bold leaders combine with big ideas to make life better for all of us. I'm your host, Sean Nason, CEO of Offer Health and founder of Mofi. This season is all about amplifying the voices of badass women leaders in the healthcare industry who are influencing change by thinking big, putting people first, and not being okay with the status quo. Experience matters, culture matters, and revenue matters. That's why it's time to unite, to ignite a people-first business revolution, especially industries that affect all of us like healthcare. Dr. Ye-Din Yu is a practicing physician and serial entrepreneur, passionate about transforming the way we deliver healthcare. She currently serves as the Chief Medical Officer and Chief Product Officer at Olive, an automation and intelligence company bridging the divide in healthcare. Prior to Olive, Yidding was Chief Medical Officer at Verada Health until Verada's acquisition by Olive in 2020. Yidding also founded and served as CEO of Twiage, an award-winning healthcare tech platform for emergency responders, which she also successfully exited an international keynote speaker. She has headlined events for Elle Magazine, Cartier, the American Medical Association, and the American Heart Association. Welcome to the Combustion Chronicles Eating.
1: Thanks so much, Sean. It's great to be here.
0: It is so awesome to have you. And holy cow, I now understand more than ever why you claim this title of a and identify as a serial entrepreneur, which is not common for doctors. So, what is it about entrepreneurism that fuels you and and made you claim this title as a serial entrepreneur?
1: For me, it's this um it's the famous Gandhi quote that really comes to mind. Be the change you wish to see in the world. And as an entrepreneur, you can envision the future you wish to see and actually see it come to life. It's the absolute most exhilarating feeling to watch your brainchild come alive, watch it grow, even watch it evolve beyond what you might have imagined, and see it all in the world. Sometimes you can touch it, you can see other people use it. you can see how it impacts patients, which for me, as a physician is so meaningful. I say this as a founder and a creator, so I, I think it's but I think it's also true for the dreamers who join a startup or an early company because you can help bring those solutions if you believe in them into the world being a part of the entrepreneurship ecosystem means that you can have so much impact in a very short period of time and that's what i find so addicting about it
0: i love it and i what inspires me about what you just even said to us is you're not just someone in healthcare who says we need to make change and then does nothing about it right and so you use that quote that so beautifully said that you decided, no, I, I'm going to be the change. I need to be that change and I need to make it happen. And in your bio, you lead with being passionate about how we deliver healthcare, which, as we both know, is no simple task because, in my opinion, and I'm sure in your opinion, because that's why you're a serial entrepreneur, our healthcare ecosystem is just broken. Right. So what's at the core of the brokenness in the healthcare industry?
1: I've been thinking about this question because you're <laughs> so right, Sean. I've been thinking about this for two decades. Many more have spent even more time thinking about what's wrong with US healthcare. But you know, it always comes back to the same foundational problem I see, which is that there are misaligned incentives between patients, providers, and payers. Health insurance here really distorts the market. Patients, they want care, but they're shielded from the full cost of care, um, most cases, and their agency is really limited. We, we treat patients like children. They have to mother, may I, if they want a, an MRI. And even if their doctor says, yes, you should get an MRI, we'll allow you to have an MRI, then they have to say, health insurance company, will you pay for my MRI? Do I have an allowance? there's really no other industry where we treat a patient or a human being or like the consumer with such levels of infancy where we take so much decision-making away from them. So they, as the consumer, have so little ability to influence the market. Then you have providers, doctors like me, and we want to provide care to our patients. We want to do things. And selfishly, we want to get reimbursed well for that. And that then gets into the third Player in this market, and those are the payers. Those are the health insurance companies, and of course, they want to pay as little as possible. <laughs> and they also, to control costs, they want to gatekeep care to only care that they believe is strictly necessary. Right. So, every group has a different set of aligned incentives, and as you can imagine, the people who hold the purse strings have the most leverage. And that's the health insurance companies, and with been created over decades and decades are these layers and layers of bureaucracy. And that creates two profound effects, in my opinion. The first is it creates this incredible friction to get care, right? We experience this all. And just my example about just getting an MRI is a good example of that. But the second really insidious effect is that those layers of bureaucracy impacts our ability to actually solve and make change. And so any wow. change as means disrupting layers and layers of dependency that's built into the system. So it feels like this giant Jenga puzzle, right? If you want to make <laughs> one single thing, how are you going to undo all the other things? And that means that providers are reluctant to change because they're going to be at risk for payments. Insurance companies are resistant to change. And so we, when I think about it as an entrepreneur and I want to make change, I think about how do I how do I solve this Jenga puzzle? And actually do something when I've got layers and layers and layers of bricks piled on top of it. So I think that's really at the crux of what's broken and what we have to understand before we go about trying to make change.
0: So you had a magic wand. What is the first thing you say that has to happen to bring change?
1: If I had a magic wand, the first thing I would do is solve for the patient's. I want to empower patients. We have to allow patients to have more agency, more autonomy, more decision-making capacity. And maybe, right, we know that that's not going to be saying that patients face the full brunt of all costs because healthcare is just too expensive in a moment of life or death. When you're having a heart attack, you can't coupon shop which cardiologist is going to fix your heart, right? So we know that healthcare is unique. And so consumers are going to be a little bit unique in healthcare. But I, I fundamentally think that first and foremost, patients have to be allowed to vote with their feet. They have to be allowed to choose and reward health insurance companies and doctors with their business because that is the best incentive that we have in the free market. And I think that we're seeing some parts of that right when you see really market-driven companies, some of the like CVS or Walgreens, these companies that have very large retail arms. And they found that if I can build a, a loyal patient customer base with my walk-in clinics or with my vaccine programs, maybe they'll spend more in my drugstores. And that brings a, a sense of revenue, right? So they're incentivized to make that experience as wonderful as possible because then they'll spend more at a CVS or more at a Walgreens. And, and in traditional clinics, that doesn't happen, right? You you want to do right by your patients. but Building patient loyalty doesn't necessarily generate more revenue. So so it's hard to find the economic um, incentives to do that well when all the reimbursements are being controlled by the health insurance company. If we can break that cycle and give patients the ability to choose, then there's more and more pressure placed on providers and health insurance companies to do the right thing and start competing for these consumers that makes other industries efficient.
0: And you're preaching to the choir here. but <laughs> uh, I worked for a major payer early on in my healthcare career. Actually, it's what took me into healthcare was working for a payer, and then had the had the honor. You were talking about CVS and Walgreens, and our team at MoFi had the honor to help bring to life what today is known as Walmart Health in the early stages in 2018, 19, and 20. And this whole agency of how do you look at a patient as a consumer? How do you look at it as a customer? Because, like you said, customer loyalty built into a hospital doesn't necessarily mean revenue. Customer loyalty built into a CVS, a Walgreens, a Walmart, whoever is trying to do it. But at the same time, and I'm going to go out on a limb here and and want to talk about a beast that happens in this and want your opinion around it, is those models are set up almost in more traditional urgent care models, right? So, but we also know that it's very hard to make urgent care profitable. (laughs) And so, I know when we worked at Walmart and did some of that work, it was really about Could you get people in the door to obviously increase what they call their basket sales, right? Because then could you get them into the store, get the, and that's where the money was going to be made, not necessarily in the healthcare space. So this is a huge beast. How do you even begin to transform it in such a way? Like, what's the first step that we need to do? Because we can say payers need to get out of the way. Reality is payers aren't going to get out of the way. (laughs) right? Providers, you're a doctor. You said it, you want to be paid well for your care and you deserve to be paid well. Let me also say that because some people would say different, but I'm going to say you deserve to pay well. All of this transformation comes around the dollar, this beast. Where is the starting block to start to tear down that, this transformation in payment?
1: John, I wish I had like an easy answer, right? If there was one, we'd probably be there. I think there's. I've been following the policy debates for many years, and obviously there are some camps, right, who believe in we just dramatically need a change to single payer or nationalize or do something radical. We either radically change health insurance and how we pay for it. That could be, but I think it also will create its own host of challenges because even then you still have to figure out how to ration care, how you set payments, right? So I think there's strong benefits and in, in possibly increasing access to care, but you're also going to have other challenges. So let's just not like kind of anchor on that and say, oh, that's your magic wand. I think it is a beast, as you say. And unfortunately, to take down a beast, this is going to be a many arrows approach. We've got to pick at so many different aspects of it. And there's a couple areas where I think for any innovator, for anybody who's in the system and looks at this beast and says, how could I do anything? This is futile. I, I nothing's ever going to change. I would say you're wrong. We have to go after the low-hanging for we have to go after this in many different ways, and in those small areas, we will impact the care for the patients. We will impact what that means for the patient experience, and it might feel slower than we'd like, but there's no easy you know panacea for you. There's no silver bullet here. What I think you know, a great example of this is there's been probably in the last 10 years an increasing focus on the pain of prior authorizations. Patients, providers, health insurance now, United Healthcare, you know, came out and said starting this month, we're going to reduce the number of prior authorizations by 20%. I mean, states are passing laws on this. Clearly, this is a big pain point. When I think about why do there does prior authorization even exist? It's a mother, may I? It's saying, it's saying the doctor says I should get this treatment. And then you ask for reimbursement. And then the insurance company says, all right, doctor, do you think Sean should get this treatment? <laughs> and it's funny because the doctor would say, well, I ordered it for Sean. I thought I made that clear, but it's, it's, it's this next step, right? To prove it one more time. And when you actually look at it, when you actually look at the numbers, going into something like prior auth, what you'll see is that between 90 to 98% of the time, patients will get that care approved. And for things like radiology, like CT scans, MRIs, it's close to the upper 90s. It's things like surgeries, which are in the lower 90s. But there's really on average, like 90 plus percent. So that means out of 10 patients, You're asking doctors and patients to jump through hoops nine out of 10 times so you can catch maybe one of them who you might prevent. And we can solve this with technology. So one of the things that we've done with AI is to say, Sean has been suffering from, let's say, back pain for months. He's done everything right. He's taking his Therapy. He's done uh, some conservative medications. He's taken the Tylenol and the ibuprofen, and um, he's done his exercise. We've tried everything. We need to get a back MRI now because it's absolutely indicated. And nine out of ten patients are in that spot when they get a back MRI. They already have done everything. You don't need to have them wait any longer. All the records are in the EHR. They're all electronic. AI. We and we've developed this AI at Olive. We can actually say we just read through all of your chart at once because computers can read it instantly, and then say all the documentation is there. We can prove that all the documentation is there, so you don't need to fax, you know, a bunch of clinical notes over to Cigna or United Healthcare, and you don't need a nurse to manually read those notes. We can tell you right now that you know Sean has done everything right. His doctors have done everything right, and you should approve it right now. Technology like that can make point of care authorizations. Mm. And so you're still satisfying, let's say, the insurance company's need to make sure that we aren't being wasteful, but you can do it in a way that doesn't give, you know, more work to the patient or the provider. And there are pockets where this is already live, that this is being rolled out. And when you can implement then this. Then you've actually solved it for those patients. Now we just have to do it for more and more patients and more and more health plans. But there are examples like this, and there's probably examples in patient payments, and there's other examples in the revenue cycle. Unfortunately, we're just gonna have to find areas where technology can radically cut through some of the bureaucracy. That's how I think realistically we, we have to go for it. It's, it's just not possible to take a samurai knife and cut through all the layers. Yeah. A
0: nice smile can be pleasing if you can get the dental care to help create one. Medicaid kids don't always have a lot to smile about. It's challenging for them to see a dentist. Offer Health was started to increase access to health care for people who don't have it. Offer SmileMD business partners with dental practices to get these kids seen faster. SmileMD's three-person care team brings hospital-grade anesthesia to the dental offices so those kids can be on their way to getting the smiles most of us may take for granted. Offer Health, creating connections, improving lives, care you deserve. Learn more at offerhealth.com. That's O-F-F-O-R. And I love it because I, I love your approach where you were talking about the mother may I. I went through last year stage three colon cancer and my oncologist wanted me to have a PET scan. But before I could get the PET scan, I had to get the CAT scan. I had to get the MRI because of that whole bullshit around pre-off, right? You have to go through this process when, no, you're the oncologist. He's the trusted source. So you you were right up my alley. With that one. So, you're talking about tons of innovations, and in your career, you've launched so many and scaled a number of innovations. Can you tell me what's been your favorite innovation that you've ever gotten to work with and why?
1: Sean, it's like asking which one is my favorite child. <laughs> right. I think it's so hard because there's so many amazing ideas, amazing people I've worked with to bring these ideas to life. Obviously, something that is really special to me is my first uh, startup, Triage, where you know I was just a resident in training and came up with I would call a stupidly simple idea. I mean, this was the simple idea is just use a smartphone to send better information to hospitals during an emergency. I mean, they're ubiquitous. Why can't we do it? Why weren't we doing it? Why are we like radioing these people and just calling people over the telephone or over the radio lines? Like that doesn't make any sense. You can send photos, videos, EKGs, all this stuff securely just with that little square thing in your uh, in your pocket. So it it's an example of what I love about it was just an example of taking existing technology and Applying it to a use case that can dramatically impact patient care, we we saved on average 14 minutes during a stroke and a heart attack for patients. And when you think about that, right? If you're Holy cow! A, yeah, if you're having a heart attack. If you're having a stroke, and. Because your ambulance was able to send information to the hospital, your hospital was ready the moment you got there. Nobody said, what's your name and date of birth? They say, I know who you are. Let's get you into the CT scanner. Let's get you into the cath lab. That is life-saving. And so what I love about that experience is to realize that you don't have to have a master's degree in machine learning and all this crazy AI to make a profound difference to patients' lives and and improve access to care. Sometimes it's just asking, why don't we do this? And challenging the status quo, and and finding through it. And so now the technology is used across the country, and we've we've impacted so many patient lives. And I'm so excited that it lives on. It continues to be used right by first responders. And that's really special to me. And now, right now, I am focused in a different part of healthcare. I'm in the deep in the revenue cycle for healthcare systems, and they are struggling. They are losing money. They're dealing with massive burnout and turnover of their staff after the epidemic. They're in so much financial trouble. And here we're solving it. I'm so excited about this because we're taking, we're actually mirroring clinical data and the ability to read clinical data with AI and matching it with financial data and outcomes like claims and and eligibilities and and what actually happens on the financial system and saying, if I can marry the two, then I'm essentially doing what health insurance companies are doing. I'm, I'm saying, should this care be paid for? And is it reasonable? And historically, we've always done financial analysis on the finance side, and we've done clinical AI on the clinical side. Being able to bridge that divide, I think, is going to be radical. And I'm super excited about what we'll do in that space by by connecting those points of disconnected data.
0: Those are such great stories, both of them. And I'm really excited, obviously, right now, that there's so much talk about AI and chat GBT4 and this AI and, and what it can do. And I've always, from a mentor of mine, learned this years ago on... How do you have high tech and high touch at the same time? And how do you use technology as an enabler, not the answer, to get the care that you need? And um, sounds like that's what you guys are doing. So we use this terminology a lot called maverick-minded and human-obsessed in my world. And in your bio, the words that stuck out to me the most, you use this term where you say bridging the divide in healthcare which is what Olive is doing, what exactly do you mean when you talk about the divide in healthcare and what needs to happen for us to really bridge that divide? I know we've gotten lots of examples, but let's talk specifically about this bridging the divide.
1: As you can probably tell, there's many, many potential divides. I think the divide that we most frequently talk about at Olive is the divide today between providers and payers, and it could not be a larger chasm today. Unfortunately, today I think you know what we hear from our provider organizations is that they just struggle to get paid. They are battling insurance providers for reimbursement rates. They're battling their denials, and there appears to feel, in many ways, whether it's real or not, but they, this is their perception that. Sometimes they're just getting denials because it feels as if they're being challenged to see how many of, they, of them they can work and overturn. And even though most of them will get overturned, it's almost if I overwhelm you with denials, you just can't possibly get to all of them. So I'll I'll sneak by some, some cheap shots. And I know this is a very cynical view, right? If you were listening from a payer, you'd say, that's absolutely not what we're trying to do. But unfortunately, that's the view of the providers right Mm. now. They they have such a cynical view of of this world. It it feels so adversarial. And I'm an optimist. I'm also a pragmatist, but I'm a real optimist. And I I don't think that people who sit and work for an insurance company or work for a payer are evil. They're not there, you know, rubbing their hands together, (laughs) thinking about how do I screw over the providers and my patients? I don't think that's happening. And I think what really, what we try to do at Olive is to say, how do I bridge this divide by ensuring and helping provider organizations get paid appropriately, get paid quickly, um, and and minimize the time that they spend just worrying about getting payments so they can focus on patient care, right? Focus on the high-touch elements that they're really trained to do. So one of the examples of where we're really investing, and so we we have technology across the revenue cycle. And what I saw when I looked across the revenue cycle was how disjointed it was. So when you think about a patient's experience through healthcare, and you talked about, Sean, about your your experience in healthcare recently, you realize like you probably get scheduled for appointments and then maybe a day or a couple of days, or maybe even weeks later, you see that doctor, that doctor refers you for a scan and maybe another scan. And then you actually get scheduled for the scan. Then you actually go get that scan. Then you get billed for the scan. And meanwhile, a couple of weeks later, you get some bills. So in your mind, you would have viewed that all as I saw the doctor and I got a scan. That seems like maybe two touches. But in the revenue cycle, it is segmented into probably 10, 11, 20 different interactions, multiple eligibility checks to make sure your insurance is still active. Oh, yes, there was a scheduling. There was the prior authorization. There was a referral check to make sure there was a referral. Oh, and every single billable procedure got billed and they got billed separately. And so when you look at the financials for a health care system, they can't see your episode of care. They only see financial data at a claim level and they see eligibility data at the eligibility level and prior auth data at the prior auth level. And yet, if you want to solve this, I really believe you have to link all the data together. It makes sense when you connect it. And so at all of we've worked to be able to match all the data. So from Sean, your first scheduling and the first time they check and verify your insurance to when you actually see the doctor a couple's day later to the prior authorization for that MRI to actual getting the MRI and the bill for that MRI, we can link all those interactions and say that was one episode of care. That was one set of encounters. And when you think about it all, here are where you actually missed a couple of things. You might you might have missed a prior author. You might have missed an eligibility checker. You have to miss a coding element. And we can show that to you. And when you give people that context, they can see a lot more of the story and be able to actually solve for things better than if you just narrowly looked at data and said, well, what does a denial data tell me? Because that's what we've been doing for decades in healthcare. And we've reached the limit to how useful that is. The next step is connecting disconnected data, and I think that will hopefully really revolutionize the way revenue cycle automation and revenue cycle AI is going to be reliant on that type of rich episode-wide data.
0: You make my heart sing because of everything you just talked about, right? And yeah, I'm probably a little cynical too, and I worked for a payer, but I do think that they just go through like and pick and say, we're going to deny this claim, we're going to deny... Blows my mind, blows my mind. So, you were speaking my love (laughs) language there. So, all right. So, this season, I'm loving this season already. We're we're diving in with women in leadership, executives, and healthcare. And we added something different this season. We're doing this two minute drill, and we use how might we statements, all based in our methodology, and mindsets of human-centered design of how might we solve a problem. And so it's been really fun asking these questions. And you and I, for two minutes, just kind of jamming and ideating around something. So I actually have my little stopwatch here um, and timer set for two minutes. And I'm going to read a how might we statement. And I'm going to let you lead on ideating how you might solve this problem. And you're a serial entrepreneur and you're creative, so I can only imagine how fast you'll pop stuff off here. But of course, we put you on the spot and that's always fun. So here we go. How might we empower more women to become change makers in the healthcare industry? Go.
1: All right. Well, the first thing first is that Women are overrepresented in healthcare, so this is not a supply or a pipeline problem. I think we have to um, start, especially when you're addressing whether you know that women are underrepresented at the very top, at boardrooms and C-suites. We've got to focus on mentoring, sponsoring, and promoting women. I also think that when we look at, especially in, in physician world, we look at what female faculty versus male faculty often do. And there's this trend where we always see that women tend to do the kind of volunteer work. They tend to volunteer for certain committees that help the organization, but not necessarily that might help their individual careers, right? They're not necessarily the ones who are thinking about, oh, what if I start a new idea or start a new center? They are thinking about, well, how can I help reduce the burden of work for my fellow colleagues? And it's probably a little bit stereotypical, but it's where many women have historically felt most comfortable asking for or advocating for themselves, right? The the common trope is that women feel comfortable advocating for helping others as opposed to advocating for Mm. themselves. And I think we need to both encourage women to advocate for themselves, to expect women to advocate for themselves, and almost... If you are mentoring a a woman and you realize that she's not asking for things that you would want her to ask for, if she was looking for career growth, if she's looking for leadership, suggest it. I think that is our top thing that we can do in the healthcare industry. I will say, though, I I think that tech is so underrepresented by women, and we have a hell of a lot to do to change that on the tech sector.
0: I love it. And right at the two-minute mark. Look at you gave like four great things for our listeners to, to look at and can to think about and ponder on as women. And I loved what you said. And I hope everyone hears what we're talking about. Like it's it's not that it's unrepresented in healthcare. It's just the representation isn't in all the right places.
1: There is a pipeline. There is the supply, right? There are talented women everywhere. And it starts at your organization. It it has to start with you, right? This is not some mandate on high. You have to be, if you care, you look at it. And it doesn't matter what your role is or where you are. You could be a a manager, you could be a director, you could be a VP, you could be a CEO. You have the ability to change how leadership looks at your organization.
0: All right. We've come to this point on the podcast. We do this every episode. We're in our ninth season where we do these things called the combustion questions. And there are three randomly selected questions that my AI human robot sent to me, okay? And I am just going to be reading them for the first time as I ask them to you. So are you ready for your combustion questions? Ready as ever. All right. Question number one. If you could fly to dinner anywhere in the world on a supersonic private jet, where would you go and what would you hope to eat? I'm a
1: foodie. This is so hard. <laughs> um, I love sushi. And so I would probably fly to Japan, maybe Tokyo, and enjoy like a Michelin-starred omakase. I love that.
0: Oh, I love it. We're, we're going to have to do that. When I hit the lottery someday, we'll have that's to.
1: Right. That's right.
0: That's right. That's right. All right. Question number two. And I'm glad you're a foodie because this is a very important question. We even have this discussion in our home. And I didn't know this question was coming up. Does pineapple belong on pizza or not?
1: Oh, I'm a I'm a strong yes on this one. Hawaii, Hawaiian pizza may, might not be like my constant go-to, but I really enjoy it every time I have it. I think that a little bit of sweet on pizza is a good thing.
0: See, I just can't get over the I can't <laughs> do pineapple on pizza. You know, unless it's like a dessert pizza and it's got cream cheese and all that, but
1: really, really, yeah. I like the little bit of char on it. I love uh, the charred
0: yeah. pineapple. I like charred pineapple, but not. I, I just can't. <laughs> um, my daughter's a huge Hawaiian pizza fan, so I, I, I get it. All right, question number three: What do you think about fire pits?
1: Oh, I always stop at those solo fire pits. And I always think that I'll want one and I know I'll never use it. So that's probably like top of mind, first impression, what I think of fire pits. They seem amazing, but the chances that I'll be outside with a, like a marshmallow on a stick actually using one is never. So I guess I really just enjoy them when I'm at like a campsite and somebody else has done all the work to get the fire pit ready, but, ah. Uh, they seem wonderful to have around my home, but I know it'll just never get taken out of the garage.
0: <laughs> I have two of them at my house, and I don't know that we even lit one up this last winter or fall. So I, <laughs> I agree. Well, what an honor! Eating like it's just—I'm enjoying the season so much just to hear how powerful women. And are doing such amazing things in healthcare. And what you're doing at Olive is so powerful. So, thank you for sharing your story with our listeners. I'm assuming the best place to get a hold of you, if people want to follow you, is on LinkedIn, and which is how we connected. So, um, thank you so much and be safe and stay well. Thanks so much, Sean. It's such a pleasure. Awesome. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Combustion Chronicles. If you've enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review. Remember that I'm always looking to meet more big-thinking mavericks. So let's keep the conversation going by connecting on LinkedIn. If you want to discover more about human-obsessed, maverick-minded leadership, go to mophie.co or go to experienceevangelist.com to learn more about my mission to challenge leaders to blow up outdated, siloed systems and rebuild them with an aligned, human-first approach. You can also learn more about Offer Health's commitment to reimagining outdated healthcare models at offerhealth.com. As always, stay safe, be well, and keep blowing shit up.